You can tell it's January, can't you? Because there's lots of information, lots of new things. I'm going to give you one more bit of information um, before I preach. Tonight, evening services, let me explain just for a moment what we're going to do. We're using some material from the Gospel Coalition, and the series is called The Gospel Shaped Church. This is part one of five, five, I think it is, maybe six, and it's all about worship. So bi-weekly for the next 14 weeks, um, no, bi-monthly for the next 14 weeks, we're going to be seven times in 14 weeks. Um, we're going to go through these seven sessions. What does it look like? Um, we're going to sing, we're going to open and worship because it's good to do. We're going to set the seats out in various little horseshoes, and it's going to be primarily led um, by video. And we're doing that not because we're lazy, but because I think the videos are really, really good. There's two videos that are eight minutes each. Then there's a chance for discussion from the back of that. And what differentiates this from growth groups is this is much more about corporate thinking. Growth groups are very much about us and, and kind of personally reflecting going forward. That's why we build kind of close groups, confidential groups, where we're, where we're confident and happy to share things. But this is much more about us thinking corporately, thinking together. Uh, and tonight we're going to explore what is worship at six o'clock. Steph, do you want to just play the intro to this? It's like a minute and a half and then we'll dive into the world. What kind of church should we be? Churches and pastors, pastors are often, often so focused, focused on the pressures of running church life that we don't stop to think about this fundamental question. Maybe we do things because they just seem to work. We do some other things in church simply because we enjoy them. Perhaps we do some things because they're the latest program or innovation. And maybe we do other things, well, just because we've always done them. Gospel-shaped church is a new curriculum from the Gospel Coalition that will help whole congregations to pause and ask this fundamental question slowly, carefully, and prayerfully. It will help a church open up the Bible in formal gatherings, in home groups, and as individuals to see what God's agenda for the church is, to see where the head of the church, Jesus Christ, wants to lead us. It's our conviction that the good news that makes the church should also be the fundamental thing that shapes the church. Join us on a journey of exploration and discovery that could change the way you think about church forever. What kind of church should we be? We should be a church that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last final thing, uh, I need some help. We could do with some catering help for our Christianity Explored course starting on the 7th of February. If you can cook and are good at it, please come and have a chat with me after the service. John 14, uh, we are now on the home stretch. We are now in John until we finish John. Um, we are here, we're going to hit the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We're going to finish up sometime in May um, with, I think, no breaks. That may change because... This is just some dates in the diary. But we're now going to work our way through to the very end of John. We're going to read today John 14, 1 to 14, the first section. And next week, I'll, I'll take the second half of chapter 14. I wonder if you've ever had an awkward dinner party experience. I remember being five or six. I would lived and was born in East London, we were there at that time. And this most wonderful Indian couple in the church invited us for dinner. I remember, and it was fabulous. They put on this incredible spread of 
curries and chutneys and breads and everything else you can imagine. Now, Victoria, my wife, says of me that a korma could make me cry. And we went to this house and it was fabulous. And this stuff was Vindaloo times 10. Everything that was on this table. It's a little five-year-old me. Uh, I couldn't handle it. It was brutal. Uh, and of course, these were lovely believers. These were lovely people. Uh, and I'm not sure I, how well I hid it. But I just remember if they go get more food, my dad would have to eat as much as he possibly could to try and cover for the rest of us. Um, I wonder if you've had any interesting dinner party experiences. Um, as wonderful as that was. We're here, we're at the table, that's the context, we're in the upper room, we're at the end, very close to the end now of the life of the Lord Jesus here on earth. So we're sitting then at this unconventional meal, we have this master, teacher, Rabbi Jesus, he has washed his friend's feet, he, has tell, he tells them that one of them is going to betray him, he goes to Judas, Judas gets a bit annoyed, Judas leaves. He tells them he's leaving. He tells them that they should love one another. And he tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times. Jesus' friends are mortified. They are full of sadness and they're utterly confused. It sounds like an interesting meal to this point. So let's join it. Let's read uh, John 14. Words will be on the screen if you want to read along verses 1 to 14. It's entitled, I am the way and the truth and the life. It reads, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it, were not, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Jesus, what's going on? What does this mean? Where are you going? You're 33. Surely you don't have to go anywhere. What does the future hold? What, Lord, I just don't understand. These are the thoughts of the disciples that we meet here. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking, exactly where they're at, 
And his response is simply, let not your hearts be troubled. I want you to remember those words because they are the context of today. Everything that flows in these verses flows from the first bit of the first verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. We come to disciples, great, uh, great anguish, great anxiety, so troubled so unsure and into that Jesus says let not your hearts be troubled if you find yourself in that place this morning that your heart is troubled that knows anguish or sorrow or struggle or guilt or confusion whatever it might be these words are for you what Jesus does is he lays out in amongst the question and the statement from his friends he lays out three things for us it's nice when passages break down into three But he lays out three things for us, three reasons for us not to let our hearts be troubled. The first one we find in the first four verses. Let not your hearts be troubled because we have a future hope. According to Jesus, heaven is real. Heaven is the place where God dwells and Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father. Heaven is described for us. In the New Testament, as a kingdom, an inheritance, a country, a city, and here, a home. Heaven is my Father's house, says Jesus. It is home for God's children. I find this amazing, but in chapters 13 to 17 of John, he uses the word Father 53 times. I think so much of that is because the Father is so close to his mind. He knows he is so close to fulfilling his mission and his purpose on earth. He is consumed by what is to come, the impending cross, the wrath that will be put upon his shoulders. I'd love to do a study in this of just this, so much of this is the basis of Trinitarian theology. It's the basis of why we believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I won't cover that today. Jesus is preparing a place for all true believers. Each place will be beautiful. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry, friends. I'm going before you. I'm going ahead of you. You're going to come with me. If you don't come with me, then one day I will return and I will come back for you. Do not worry. When he was here on earth, Jesus was a carpenter. He was a a builder. And now he's returned to glory. He is building his church on earth. And he is building a home for that church in heaven. What do we know about this place? What do we know about heaven? What do we know about the Father's house? We know quite a lot about the character of God. We know a little bit about heaven. And if we know two things, it is a place of joy and it is a place of love. John tries, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, to describe this place for us. And he almost runs out of symbols and comparisons. What will there not be? There will be no death. There will be no sorrow. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. There will be no night. Friends, the future hope The future glory that awaits us is beautiful. Let not your hearts be troubled because there is a hope greater than what you face right now. There is a place for me and if you love the Lord Jesus, you will come with me. You see, the trouble in our hearts, the things that disturb us, the things that unsettle us, don't just trouble us, but it troubles God. Tragedy, loss, trauma, worries, hardship, they trouble us. You might be walking in the midst of some of them now. But Jesus doesn't want us to be powerless in the face of crisis. 
at the time of his words, he knew what was coming. He knew the evil that would put him to death. Yet behind it all, the hand of God is at work. His dying act of obedience to his heavenly father was the very thing that would set us free. And he tells his friends, trust in me, trust in the father. Trust in us, trust in God. They had to trust in God. Even when they could find absolutely no reasoning to do so. Because trust was to be the anchor of their faith. And the entire world would fall upon the shoulders and be taken to the cross on the Lord Jesus. Trust was their anchor in the midst of this storm. In the midst of this utter perplexion, confusion that stood in front of them. Trust would be their anchor in the three days where they waited uh, for the rising again that most of them didn't really think was coming. It was their anchor of hope that he would come again when he ascended. I'm going soon. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a beautiful place. It's a joyful place. It's a free place. A place that there will be no consequences of sin because there sits the Savior who defeated it. Friends, let not your hearts be troubled. Look at what is in store for you. Jesus calls us here to an eternal perspective. This is not our home. Our home is with him. Look to the future glory that awaits. Not because of your deeds, your good works, but through the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. And Jesus finishes this section in, in, at the end of verse 4 by saying, and you know the way to where I am going. First thing, do not fear, do not be afraid, do not let your hearts be troubled because you have a future hope. Secondly, I want to look at the future reality that Jesus presents to them. We're presented with a question from Thomas, a statement from Philip. Jesus responds to both. Jesus paints this grand picture. And there we have Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You, Jesus would be well within his right just to face Pam at this point. And just, oh, again, come on. You know this. We've been over this. It kind of makes me smile, though, because I imagine... Jesus just sitting there going, but you already know. I'm here. You know where you're going. You know what is to come. But Thomas just didn't have a clue. He didn't understand. And I don't want to be too harsh on the guy because I think his question reveals his desire to be with Jesus. And it meant that he had to know where his master was going. And he was desperate to know how on earth do I get there. The master is going and I want to follow him. I want to go with him. This place, I've no idea where it is, but it sounds great. How on earth do I get there? Little did dear Thomas know that it was through the man sitting beside him. I am the way and the truth and the life. The sixth of our seven I am statements in John's Gospel. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. And I am the way and the truth and the life. Two weeks time we'll come to the final of those seven. I am the true vine. But you see I am the way and the truth and the life aren't three separate statements. This isn't Jesus is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. But we could read it as if the word because links the three of them. 
I am the way because I am the truth, because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I have the power to give eternal life. There is one way to the Father and it is through me. I am the door. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved. Luke Acts 4. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To Timothy, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. This statement from Jesus isn't particularly groundbreaking. This isn't fresh revelation to the people because this is the consistent theme of Jesus throughout the New Testament. This is God providing a path, a way, a way of redemption for his people, a plan from all eternity that the divine word would take on human nature and make the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I'm the only way to the Father. How can we be so narrow-minded? If God is a God of love, how can some be saved and not others? We live in a culture that says it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. As long as you passionately believe whatever you believe, that's fine. But there isn't really anything more anti-biblical Christianity than it doesn't matter what you believe. Oh, it matters what you believe. Your destiny depends on it. So do you believe? Do you believe that you are a fallen sinner in need of a saviour? And do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Paid a price that you could never pay or repay. Do you know him and do you love him? If the answer is yes, your life will never be the same again. This, this is what matters. The troubled heart needs to remember that Jesus Christ is everything. These are words of comfort. In just a few hours, these troubled souls will be even more troubled. But they will find comfort at the cross. Not only in its saving power, but also in its demonstration of the most pure and unadulterated love that has ever been seen. And it is that love, that love of Calvary, that love of Christ, that will see us through this troubled world. In verse 7, Jesus again, he just, as he's doing all the time here, he's just affirming his oneness with the Father. He's letting them know who he is. He's saying, you've seen me, therefore you've seen the Father. And we have another disciple pop up, utterly perplexed. Philip pops up this time, and again, as these guys say this, they're speaking on behalf, I think, of the disciples. This is the general tone of what's going on in this room. Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll believe. Just show us God. I wonder if you ever had that question given to you before. If you just show me God, I'll believe. <coughs> it's like Philip saying, Jesus, I've seen you do amazing things. We've seen you feed, seen you feed 5,000 seen you walk on water. We, Old Testament people would have given their whole entire lives just for one of your miracles. But just give us the big one. Go on. Give us just one more. Just peel back that veil. Just peel it back. Let us see the face of God. 
And here is the response of Jesus, verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus has covered this ground. He graciously does it again. To see him is to see the Father. He is in the Father. The Father is in him. The words Jesus taught were given by the Father. The Father who dwells in Jesus gave these wonderful miraculous signs because they would add up with the teachings of Jesus. They would show people who he was. These were all things so that the disciples could have looked and listened and learned, seen Jesus' work and believe in who he is. That is the present reality. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We cling to the Lord Jesus because he has made possible what was impossible and what is impossible without him. Let not your hearts be troubled because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we come then to these last three verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is fascinating. I found this really interesting studying this week. What does it all mean? All of us who believe will carry on the work. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will do the work that I do. This is a promise to all believers. This is a promise of normal Christianity. There is no exclusion here. This isn't him talking directly to the apostles. This is, this is open-ended. This is whoever. This isn't apostles, pastors, elders, missionaries, super gifted people. No, this is whoever believes in me. So pure and simple, Jesus says, believers will do the works that I do. Whoever believes in me, we've seen it before, four times in John. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. This is what it means to be a Christian. Whoever believes in him will do the works of him. Jesus takes this a step farther in the, in the second part of verse 12. In some wonderful way, we will do something greater than the works of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. What does it mean? It doesn't mean more miraculous. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that's turned water into wine, fed 5,000, raised the dead, inside or outside of the New Testament. Let alone anything more miraculous than that. So what does it mean? 
I think we find a clue in the Easter narrative in John 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So to John 14, 12, you will continue my works, but not just continue, but do greater. Jesus is on his way to the Father. On the way to the Father, he goes to the cross. He lays down his life for his people. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. From there, he will send his Holy Spirit so that the disciples can continue the work they have been called to do. And John 20 tells us that you are to continue in his work by receiving the Spirit, imparting the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus on the basis of the death and resurrection. So what is greater than Jesus' earthly ministry? Jesus' earthly ministry was a ministry of anticipation. It was a ministry that looked forward to what he would do. But our work is a work that looks back on the already completed work of Jesus. Never before in the history of the world has anyone ever been forgiven by faith in an already crucified, already risen, already reigning, already indwelling Christ. Never before had it happened. Everything to now was in anticipation, the promise of this coming Redeemer Messiah. Everything looked forward, but now Jesus is gone. Now Jesus has done it. Jesus' ministry was in anticipation of what he would do. Our ministry is because of what he has done. Therefore, it's greater, is what Jesus says. What is it? What are these works? The great work is taking the message of the resurrected Lord to the world. It is finished, no longer in anticipation. It is finished. You can know God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled because it is finished. Our works of love, this message of life, that there is life with Jesus, will point people to the glory of the risen Christ. We will be instruments of people's forgiveness on the basis of the work of Jesus. This will be new. This is greater than earthly miracles because it will see people saved verse 13 and 14 I'm not going to go through this now but um, you'll carry it on and I'll be with you ask me I'm here for you I've given you the Holy Spirit I give you the power of the crucified and risen Christ and now I promise you ask anything from me to the glory of the Father it will be done put every request through the filter of his glory, his worth, the price he paid and his wisdom. Then everything will be answered. Everything will be given. You have everything you need to do these works and an even greater work. So let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus has paid a price, the greatest price, and he is preparing an eternal home for us. Jesus is the only way to the Father, the truth and the life. And he's with us. 
He's with us when we're like these disciples, utterly perplexed, confused in heart. We have a great calling. And he's left his spirit here with us today. Friends, we have work to do. We have a gospel of hope that needs taken to this world. We all have our parts to play. I think what Jesus is saying here, take courage. Take heart. Just as Jesus was with his disciples, he's here with us today. Of course, not in the flesh, but by his spirit. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, that you would come. That you would live and die for me. That you would come and call your sheep to yourself. That you would build up your bride, your church here, and a home in heaven for us. Lord Jesus, you are awesome. You are so great. We worship your greatness. And we thank you that to this day you will never leave nor forsake us, but you are with us. The Spirit of God indwelling in us. Lord, give us that gospel boldness. Give us that courage for the works of love, the works of grace, the proclamation of the news that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In your name we pray. Amen.